Oh, wow. Straight to spring rolls, really? We can't possibly <laughs> include that. <laughs> Love it. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Roger. And welcome to The Middle, where we try to have thoughtful conversations about awkward topics on our search to find the middle. That's that phobic. I thought Bill Wall, I just owned a A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I act as if God exists. Put your masks on. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams, my childhood, with your empty words. Obviously, with the little arrival of the little one, my sleep's not been too good. I've been in a couple of weird dream states. I don't know if you've ever been so tired that um, you're not sure whether you're like awake or not. You guys were making fun of me when I, I said, oh, yeah, I, I, I watched like shows on my I phone know. while I'm... I think about that a lot, actually. <laughs> I was like, oh, you guys have no idea. This is the only <laughs> chance you get to watch it. <laughs> So, uh, so Roger, why are we doing a um, a podcast here today? Um, you know, I was I was thinking the other day. I feel kind of like a a virgin on her wedding night. You know, uh, just the anticipation, the excitement. You know, will I talk too fast? Will it be over too fast? Am I using the right kind of electronics? You know, it's just it's overwhelming. When I came to you and pitched the idea of the middle, it was really about having better conversations and. Um, Whenever we, we've always loved talking about awkward issues and I think having a place where we come together and we really try to understand topics, have a good connection about what the issues are. Um, what I find is that everyone seems to be only hearing about the extremes of things nowadays, you know, only the crazies on the left and the right. And it becomes really hard and really challenging to find out, you know, what that middle ground is for everyone. So I really wanted this concept for us to, you know, catch up as mates make sure we have good conversations and really like what else is life except having interesting conversations. So starting a podcast is is like the thing you do when you enter a midlife crisis. Yeah, so true. We all have that voice in our head that thrashes out lots of different thoughts and ideas and some of them aren't always as straightforward as what is acceptable to the rest of society. So we're going to try and push the envelope a little bit, engage in some of the more difficult topics and hopefully at least learn something in the process. And I think importantly, we might engage the trickiest parts of a conversation or a topic, but we're coming at it from a good place. We're really just exploring ideas. If you can allow yourself a little bit of space between what you're hearing and the person that's saying it to you, you can start to empathize with the position that's outside yours. And that's when you can really challenge yourself and have a bit of learning in the conversation. All right. So what are we talking about today? Religion. This is this is a, a fairly interesting place to start. When we talk about religion, what, what are the first thoughts that come to your mind? I think it's uh, it's not the soft landing that we probably needed, but it's the right place to start. You know, when I think about this episode and this topic, I feel like I've been preparing for it indirectly my whole life. You know, I think for people of our generation, religion is the OG. Is that really, like for me, it's the first place, it's the first topic that gave me the sense of intellectual debate. It's something that's very clear and very pervasive across all aspects of society. My upbringing, you know, my communities are very religious. And back when you're young and you just start to, to kind of rebel and throw off these ideas, 
it's really that stomping ground for challenging the norms, getting to grips with the absurdity of of life and where things are rational and where they're not. You know, people used to go to church every Sunday and, you know, what have we replaced it with? Avocado on toast, uh, hangover sleep-ins? <laughs> are we missing anything? Well, the interest rates keep on going up, so... Yeah, I'm missing those avocados, <laughs> but the avocados keep coming down. I think someone should make an economic index about that. That's a good chart. When when I when I think about my experiences growing up, and I was heavily part of uh, church growing up, um, Chinese community churches and things of that nature, uh, they did really have a good sense of community, you know. And I and I think that um, civilizations over time have always come together to listen to the spoken word. You know, I, I really think it feels to that place, that need, that human need to kind of listen to a teaching um, and then also come together as a community. So I see that as a good part of religion and I, and I re- regularly saw that side of it growing up. I think the other side of that coin for me is really whenever you're listening to someone uh, and they're talking to you, you really need to to kind of have that trust that that person is giving you good direction. And that leads to a a very different road. You know, why should you believe something is true? And how do you establish, what is the framework in your mind to tell truth from fiction? Just to unpack a bit of that. So you mentioned growing up, particularly Chinese community church, how much of it's really just like the vehicle that we can get a certain group of people together every, every week, every Whenever it is Sunday, I don't even know what time of the week church. I mean, we're talking about church in the Christian context here, but synagogue or mosque or whatever. How much of this is the the thing that that just ties a community together, and the actual the religion part, the scripture or whatever it is that they follow, is just this extra thing on the side that they all they all pretend to believe in, but you know maybe some. Some do believe in, but probably get people going there just simply because they they like the free spring rolls that get served. Oh wow, uh, straight to spring rolls, really? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, yeah, look, I think when it comes to cultural churches and immigrant churches, uh, it's very telling, and especially in Australia, I don't have the the you know the complete stats with me, and you you'll get used to that in this podcast. But a huge percentage of churches in Australia, I think over 75% of churches have congregations of less than 50 people. That's huge, right? Given how many churchgoers there are in Australia. And what that tells you is that it's exactly what you're describing. It's small groups of communities that come together and they wish to be part of a society, part of a group, feel that ownership. I think that for Chinese churches especially, it's that whole birds of a feather flock together. You know, they're coming here. It's a place where you can go to to get instant community, instant friends. Yeah, there'll be a couple of spring rolls uh, and um, fried rice in there as well. The potluck at the end of church is usually the highlight anyway. But to answer your question about whether they believe in it, I think they really do. And it's because just in the same way uh, a child believes in Santa, even though they kind of, if they thought about it for too long, they wouldn't. You don't have, there's just, there's no positives for you to uh, challenge it. You're kind of questioning and you're throwing out everything. It's so intertwined in your place and your standing in the community, in the church. It's also a source of confrontation with your fellow congregation. And it also has financial benef- uh, benefits to stay with the church as well. So it's part of this ever-expanding airbag that protects and um, like most social groups have that kind of self-reinforcement, self-regulation 
uh, it becomes harder and harder to to leave. And so, yeah, I think they absolutely do believe it. And um, but that even more importantly, they're taught not to, at every turn. They're taught not to question it, and I think that's the really important part. So, would you? I mean, if I drew a parallel to, let's say, something like politics, right? So, one of the things they say is that often people who believe in or support a particular political party, their policy preferences on specific topics will not be based on some independent assessment reflecting their own view of the world and how they would approach that policy issue, but rather they shortcut their policy view on it to, well, the party I support advocates for this thing, so therefore I'm also of that view. But they don't actually quite realize that that's actually what they're doing. So they just jump yeah. straight to the default view of, of the party that they support because they're committed to it. So do you think it's the yeah. same thing or do you think it's a deeper thing than that? I think that um, you've described it really well. I think there's some nuance to it, but what you've described, I would almost chalk up to like a value heuristic. There's so much going on in your life that you shortcut to the party view. And we base that on the social norms of the church that you're in and the doctrines, the Bible, um, you know, Torah, whatever it may be. It's not as explicit as, oh, there's this issue and I need to do this. You just program because when you come together for sermon, when you go to church, you're taught this again and again. So you kind of know what to do before you reach the choice. And in some ways, at least for religion, they're basing it on some kind of doctrine. So there is some level of consistency. Policies are written down as a standpoint and not just changing all the time, which is one of the uh, one of the unique things really, right? Because you find with political parties, they don't have the same charters that are as enduring. So they, they do have a strength, I guess, in that they connect people in a way that society itself in its current form would not otherwise. So, for example, we have families, you, you care about your parents, your brothers, your sisters, maybe your cousins, but there's really no other mechanism to make you care that much about the person who lives down the street. But if they start going to the same church, synagogue, mosque, that broadens that community and it does encourage them to do good things yeah. for other people, to support community, to help people in need. And then I guess the other piece of this puzzle too is you have actually some fairly simple but good pieces of advice to live your life by. So, you know, the golden yeah. rule, treat others mm -hmm. as you would like to be treated yourself, don't eat pork. <laughs> The, the I went to a place today that only had beef bacon. It took me a really long time to understand. I'm like, I'll have the eggs Benedict with bacon. And they're like, no, but no, it's, it's beef. I'm like, no, I, I want the bacon. It's like, oh, no, you can have beef. And it just took me this really long time to understand that it was beef bacon well, because they were halal. Chicken, chicken bacon. That's uh that's mm, that's or tur turkey bacon. Turkey bacon. Yeah. But well, actually, but, but on a serious note, you know, don't don't like anthropologists say that that whole don't eat don't eat pork is actually has a, a benefit yeah. to presumably there was some sort of disease was was spread via pork <laughs> consumption and, and then two major religions say, hey, don't eat this. Yeah. The spoken word is about learning in terms of mass communication, mass education. And I've no doubt in my mind that religion has been used to educate the masses in a really good way to live in civilizations. And by using some of the things that you've mentioned, the golden rule, all these ethical and moral elements, because what it does is it, it takes modern civilizations that have you know high density populations and it puts you back in touch with a very small community. And everyone knows it's been proven that 
if you're part of a smaller community, if you know the people in your community, you treat them better and you don't want to be a jerk to the person you see for the rest of your life, right? The closer you are to people in your community, the better you act because there's reciprocity um, and you know you're going to have to deal with them later. You know, it's not altruistic. It's actually strategic. And a church community does that. It brings you and puts you back in touch with a smaller group of people where you're more socially and morally accountable. So you have a group of people that connect together on the basis of saying, hey, there's this thing in the case of, let's say, Christianity, there's this thing, the Bible, and it has, you can Mm -hmm. synthesize it into, let's say, a certain set of rules of how you should live your life. And all of those people come together to say, hey, we all agree that this is the way we want to live our life. And for some people, they genuinely believe in it in a very spiritual sense. There might be some others that maybe question their faith, aren't 100% sure, but they know that that's how they want to live their life still because they think there's inherent value in the teachings. Then you have a group. They're in a good plot, right? Yeah. (laughs) They don't want to leave the plot. It totally makes sense, right? And they come together and then that community becomes self-reinforcing. It becomes, if you live your life like this, you're one of us. If you stray from this, then you're not one of us. Or they will help you come back to the correct Mm. way of living if you want to and if you're willing to submit and be part of it. That's that's how I see it. Yeah, and that's a really good summary. Are you talking about gay therapy? (laughs) (laughs) So... I think the trade-off, whenever it comes to having a small group that's tied around some key values that you can't really question, it creates this um, in-group, out-group mentality, right? And I think religious doctrine almost always, especially the established religions, especially the Abrahamic ones, uh, they're almost always of conservative social values. Just, just for my ignorance, Abrahamic Judaism and Christianity? Uh, And Islam. And Islam, okay. Going back to it, if you're not part of those social, if you don't adhere to those social conservative values, sorry, conservative social values, um, that can cause a real, you know, a very deep level of alienation and um, shame for, for you, you know, and your subculture. There are so many examples, you know, whether you are someone who have, who's had to have an abortion, someone who is from the LGBTIQ community. There's so many different things. And I think that that is something that uh, is one of the the downsides, you know, is that it's that black mirror of the church that it's a situation too where even if they say God loves all, you still sin. And part of that then you need to feel sorry for, you need to repent for. And if that's who you are, you know, if, if, if you have that inside of you, it becomes a real psychologically destructive element in your life. Um, untold amounts of shame and pain, I think, to those subgroups. So look, the biggest thing out of all of that and where I found myself in many, many different ways through my experience is that each religion is trying to get their message across. They're trying to get their message heard and it encourages the congregation to not question it's okay to have doubts, we'll work through them, but you don't question, you never get encouraged to learn about other religions, about other alternative views. And that to me is just death for, for the human race. Belief is not something you choose, it just you, it just happens inside. 
your mind once you've understand the you know the sources and 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 everything like that so to me that's the biggest issue that religion teaches you to kind of stay inside the cave but let's shift gears in terms of whether religion is good for society and creates social cohesion to something a little bit more more targeted and that's really the question is god real uh which one and does it even matter ultimately there's no answer to that question because part of the premise of having faith or belonging to a religion is that you have faith in the answer to that question and that will be different for everyone so Mm. uh, for atheists it will be that there is no god for christians it will be that it is it is jesus so there is no categorical answer to that question what are the arguments in your head um to explain if there is a God? I think there's two types of arguments, right? There's mm-hmm. those that sort of say, hey, look, you know, it's like, I, I don't, like in, in Australia at school, and I don't know why this was ever a thing, but they had Christian studies in, in public schools in Australia. And you and, yeah. and they bring along some, you know, some virgin from the church to come and teach a bunch of kids. Well, yeah, I mean... If you're lucky, you hope he's a virgin. Well, well, we we don't know. That's <laughs> uh, that's undetermined. We'll be getting to that part. <laughs> um, they'd come into the church and they say, "No, look, um, God is absolutely real," because they found some wood on on that mountain that Noah's Ark was meant to. You know, they found some wood there, so that that's absolutely proof. And um, poor poor phrasing, but literally, that's that's kind of the words that they used. Yeah, and then they'll show like some video with kangaroos on. On a, on a, on on the ark and say, see, look, it's all it's all real. It's all like there's a, a, there's real evidence and it's very scientific. So, <laughs> yeah, and then you'll have other things. So, on YouTube, if you if you Google like banana proof of God, I promise you it won't be porn. Oh um, my god! But they. Are... I was worried when you when you sent me that link. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I've been fooled before, you know, under religious pretext. So so this is this video right, and it, and it it's basically. Um, a former child star, I think, Kirk Cameron, I think, and he's he takes a um, a banana. He's got the haircut. Well, I, I actually am not sure if it's him or it's someone else. Anyway, I it, I know he's involved somehow. Maybe he's interviewing someone, but he gets a banana and he unpeels it and he goes, "This is absolutely proof of God because it fits in your hand. You can you can peel it. It's, it's like a wrapper, right? This if this is not proof of God, then." Gravity isn't a thing. We don't have proof of gravity, right? So there's these sort of very superficial material evidence-based mm. arguments for, for why God is real. Now, these are Christian yeah. arguments, but I'm sure there are others for other other uh, religions well, What too. was your favorite part of that banana video? Because I, I found it hilarious. I literally just watched it um, 10 minutes ago. So it's really fresh in my mind. So um, I, I think yeah. the fact that, like, see, it fits in your palm. I haven't watched it for, for years <laughs> now, but like, like the fact that something fits in your palm, like if a rock on the ground can fit in your palm, like what does that prove? And my favorite bit was when he was like, so he was going, it fits in your palm, it's even curved this way. And look, <laughs> it, it fits in your it fits in your mouth. And he goes to like put the mouth in his mouth <laughs> with like blowjob lips. And um yeah, just like, that's hilarious. Even like a um you know a very serious religious person that that takes their religion very seriously, I think would would say that these are not actually kind of you know, don't 
don't pay too much attention to that. That would not be what they lead with if they want to sort of talk to people about their religion. But then you have these other category of of arguments, which I think are more philosophical, right? So you have this idea that um, if something happens, it must be caused by something, and you know nothing happens without some something doing it, and so that thing that's doing it is what we understand collectively all to be God. Mm which is itself a little bit circular because uh, what create what's the thing that creates God, right? So the, there's a few flaws there. Then you have other things like Pascal's wager, which sort of says, well, why not believe in God? And this is in a, a Christian context where the risk of not believing in God is that you go to hell and the cost of believing in God is is sufficiently low that you may as well just do it. So believe in God and, and you, you, you've got zero chance of going to hell if you if you follow and and comply i've actually fallen into that one myself you know i remember when i was talking to someone um someone else about it and it was just you know that's why i thought that you have a responsibility to find out whether this stuff is true because the stakes could be so high but uh, ultimately a very flawed philosophy and that if you are doubling down um and trying to avoid hell by maybe or maybe not believing um that's really not in the spirit of what what a divine being would want from you in terms of devotion anyway. So I think with with Pascal's wages, if you actually draw that out and you apply it to other things, right? What if what if I just simply say that if you believe that um you know that there's a, a diamond buried in your backyard, it 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 could be there, right? But if you believe that it's not there, it definitely isn't there. So you may as well believe it's there. But does that actually to your point earlier, does that actually yeah. trigger then a belief in your mind that there's a diamond in your backyard? It, it it can't. So this idea that you can just choose to believe in it, like that's the flaw with Pascal's wager, is that you can't control whether yeah. you believe or you don't believe. It's it's it comes to you and um, it's not a choice actually. I find when I meet Christians who actually want to talk about it, because a lot of people don't, um, but there's a a whole bunch of people would pretty much respond by saying, I can't I can't prove it to you, but I feel him. I feel them, whatever the divine spirit is for their religion, in my life. And I know he's there because in my heart and I feel it. I feel his their presence in my life. Um, so there's a huge category that believe that. So they want to just opt out of this conversation. They don't want to be challenged. They're not interested in having a rational debate with you. It's kind of an experience thing. You know, I can't tell you, I can't prove it to you under your framework. One thing I think, you know, it's important to, with this particular question, like does God exist, is recognize the, the spectrum of different beliefs. So there's some who would believe in a very prescriptive sense of what God is or what they believe God to be. There's those that maybe don't necessarily believe in a prescriptive sense of what God is, but that maybe are spiritual or have, you know, they're into crystals or they think there's a higher power or whatever. And then then you have kind of, well, I guess we could call like agnostics, people who just don't know at all. And they're, they're happy to, um, to accept that they don't know either way. And then you have atheists who actually believe there is no God and there's no evidence that could become available to them to convince them otherwise. Yeah. But I think one of the things that you'll often hear from atheists 
Um, and it's almost become like, I mean, I think Ricky Gervais has used it in a, in a piece is this line, you know, I believe in one, one less God than you, right. As an atheist. So by definition, you believe in, in your prescription of what God is, but by definition, you believe you, you believe that all other notions of of what God is and can be are necessarily false. So really, the difference between you as as a Christian or as a Muslim or whatever is actually not that different to to me as an atheist, because you actively believe that all other prescriptions of God are aren't true. That's the even more challenging mantle they have, and sometimes they still have the hide to turn around and say the burden of proof's not on us. <laughs> which is is incredible in in some ways right and especially if people are interested so have you ever heard of these um th- these cargo cults in the pacific basically in a nutshell in some i think they're pacific islands what happened is when europeans first arrived the local people in these pacific islands would see europeans offloading all of this all of this stuff onto these ports right that they've built and they'd do certain gestures like the runway people making the hand signals to, to land and all the rest of it. And they'd see suddenly all this cargo arrive, right? And the local people from these Pacific islands would see this and go, oh, this is like cargo coming from God. And and they, they formed a religion <laughs> around the arrival of cargo so that it emulate aspects of it. And it gets even more intriguing because the representation of God as as they formed and crafted the story around it, probably because there was a visit, was Prince Philip. So they see that the Queen ah. come with, with Prince Philip and he's this, you know, he he well firstly he you know the Queen's the, the the star, but like he's the taller male there. So they 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 think, oh well he must be the he must be God, you respect right? That who's, height, man. Who's, like if you Google, you'll you'll get you'll get it. It's a real thing. I promise. That's you. amazing. That's a great story. You know, and I've always thought that God would probably be racist, just like Prince Philip. So it all makes sense to me. <laughs> you know, and the ironic thing about that story is that they're probably bringing cargo that they pilfered from pilfered from other colonies and other, <laughs> other <laughs> islands and giving it back to them. If I'm not mistaken, you went um, to do a bit of voyeuristic action at a Scientology church. Do you want to share anything about your experiences there? I mean, I know they're highly litigious, but again, you know, <laughs> I'd love to be so big that they can cancel us. So I can confirm that I have been on an e-meter. But nowadays, you know, like if you were there nowadays, they would have to like sanitize the little oh, e-meters for you, right? COVID. I mean, I can't imagine what sort of security protocols they had. So at the time when we were there, so we arrive in the buildings. I was, I was with a friend and, and we thought, oh, well, just for sh- shits and giggles, go and check it out. <laughs> and they put on a video for us, which is, you know, like, I don't know if you may have seen on, on YouTube or elsewhere, the glossy sort of, but way over the top productions. So we were sitting down <laughs> and you just had these, like, they were fairly young. They would have been teenagers just running around the building. And we we're like, what's going on? Like, what's, 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 what's the deal with this? And they just said, we're just doing drills. It was like, what? What drills for what? It said, you never know what might happen. Um, <laughs> it, it was just this oh really God. bizarre moment. But let's change gears a little bit. What happens when your kid, and they, and they will, um, come up, comes up to you and says, what happens when I die? The idea of the afterlife, I believe, in some ways is a lot more 
pervasive and as a, as a very interesting question. And kids get to it themselves, this idea of life and death. And it's something that is the ultimate, one of life's big questions and mysteries because nobody comes back to tell you about it. You only get one shot here. Um, no one comes back to tell you what happened. So what do you think about that question? And what would you actually maybe say to, to your boy about that? I think probably what I would say is that we don't know because that's ultimately the the truth to that question. I mean, there are people who do think they know and they have what they, they think is the answer to that. I don't, other than just that we won't exist anymore and it will feel exactly the same way as it did before you were born, right? So if you, you show your, your child a photo of, you know, mummy and daddy when they first met, and they go, oh, where was I? You say, well, you weren't here. And you just say, well, it'll just be like that. So not existing isn't going to be painful. It's not going to necessarily be a bad thing. It's going to be just that you don't exist. And I, I think there's actually a, a degree of comfort in that, actually, that that not existing is actually not necessarily a bad thing. It's a state of nothingness right yeah i think that's a that's a really good way to answer that question but yeah i I think it's a really natural question for kids to have understanding life and death you go through so much of your life not really wanting to think about the beginning and the end and there are a few moments in your life you know a death in the family um things of that nature and in some ways it's a more important question than some of these other ones around whether god actually does exist but it's tied in because I think at the end of the day, and this is where some of the psychological damage can come in for some people, that most religions tell you that what happens to you in the afterlife really depends on what you do in this life and whether you follow the directions and the teachings of your religion. What are your thoughts on the religious texts? Are they real? Are they written by humans? Well, they're obviously written by humans because even the religion, the major religions themselves, uh, almost have the but same. The word of God. Well, they say, yeah, but they say it's it's revelation, right? I got this, you know, inspiration or divine, whatever, however they frame it. But it, but at the end of the day, it's um, it's a human um, putting pen to paper and oral traditions of storytelling. Uh, if the question is, do I think they're real, as in literally, then for me, very clear, no. However, I do think there is a lot of wisdom uh, in built into the text. So I think earlier we were talking about the notion that there's certain elements in built into it of how to live a good life. And I think over time there are, you know, we, we, we can talk about evolution in a biological sense, but there's also cultural evolution of what's a good idea to pass on and religions are sort of a vehicle to do that. And the texts themselves and the lessons of how to live your life are kind of really that. Now, by all means, some of the parts about God made the earth in six days, I wouldn't hold to be of any uh, merit to the way I live my life, but I can see some value in some aspects of it. And we may not even understand why they're valuable because they are valuable over many, many, many generations and many, many years of, of human existence. Sharing some of my experiences and some of the journeys that I, I kind of struggle with when 
looking at some of the doctrine and some of the religious texts, I did see a lot of what seemed to be plagiarism in some of the storytelling of texts like the Bible. Repeating motifs and stories, uh, there's some really well-documented ones around the Epic of Gilgamesh and some of the Old Testament flooding and different things of that nature. Um, and then if you just look at history around uh, the expansion of different empires of the time and Mesopotamia and, and even Rome, it's clear to me that as new lands were conquered, religious ceremonies and practices were incorporated into the new empires as they went along because that's the, one of the best ways to ensure uh, integration into your society, letting people have their own practices and um, blending them in a way that they're now tied into that self-reinforcing group that we spoke about. And you see examples of this all the time, such as uh, Christmas being around, centered around pagan, uh, Easter is the same, and a lot of blended language and other things around uh, Norse and um, a lot of the mythology of that part of the world as well. All of the institutions that we have inherited and that we grew up in and now live in have been shaped by Judeo-Christian values. And we, in our culture, have inherited those values, whether we think we have or we haven't. So to give a, an actual practical example, and look, I can't say if this is a universal experience, but I do feel guilt. So for example, you're at work and you're doing online shopping at work. I feel guilty when yeah. I'm doing that. I feel, no one will know I'm doing it. I might be working from home, but that I'm on the clock, I feel a sense of guilt. And and I think that sense of guilt, I mean, there's this concept of Catholic guilt, right? I think yeah. it is this it is this thing that you internalize from, and it's a cultural thing. Whereas other cultures, it's actually a shame culture where it's all about face. It's all about how people perceive you. So the reason you don't do internet shopping when, when you're at work isn't because you know it to be a bad thing and it's and it's something that you'll feel guilty doing. It's because if someone sees you doing it, that will bring you shame and it's the shame that you're trying to avoid. The loss of face, yeah. Yeah, I do believe that. And as part of being surrounded by this style of thinking from a very young age, that whole shame culture is really interesting too. You know, I was reading this book, Lost in Translation, which talked about the different attitudes around adultery around the world and they talked about the the japanese which is this that shame culture that you're talking about and it's not so much the act that you are cheating but it's the it's the act of actually being known as someone who cheats so it's the the partners actually get more upset about that that you didn't have the decency to not get caught and therefore bring shame on them and their family not really about whether you did it or not I'm sure it's more complicated than that. So irrespective of whether God is real or not, can we say that we're net positive or net negative as a result of religion as we know it today? I'm going to speak for myself here, Andy. I feel like I've been quite kind on religion thus far. Um, and looking back almost with a sense of fondness around some of the journey and some of the intent of um, my experience with the church growing up. Um, but I'm going to turn that around. I believe that because religion throughout history and even today is uh, really gives people access to power, especially those in 
in those positions of leadership. I do believe that power corrupts like any other power, whether it be religious, corporate, government, whatever it may be. And the way in which that power has been exercised over time and even in modern day is um, really horrific. It's actually quite shocking to think that we live in such a woke, cancel culture, yet the church can't be really cancelled. I'm going to read to you some of the, t- the top and most absurd and unforgivable things the Catholic Church has ever done. Pope Pius denying eyewitness reports of mass executions during the Holocaust. Systemically covering up tens of thousands of cases involving sexual misconduct still being investigated today. Terrorizing the Jews and Muslims for 300 years. And also a string of popes that have had personal atrocities in their private lives. One well-documented having a threesome with a married mother and daughter. Another been well-known for saying that having intercourse with young boys was as natural as rubbing one hand against the other. Burning Joan of Arc for dressing like a man. And my personal favorite, burning William Tyndale for making a version of the Bible that the masses could read. You'd think the church would be interested in the mass distribution of their doctrine if they were really serious about reaching as many souls and saving people from hell. There's a tendency to anthropomorphize the institutions of a church or a religion as though there's one single decision-making body that does these really horrible things, almost in the same way as the the Nazis, you can you can say all roads lead to Hitler and his henchmen, right? And and in the same way, the Catholic Church to sort of sort of view it as as one person making really bad decisions. But I think we can't really do that. An institution is a collective group of different moving parts that, when power comes into play does really bad things. What I would say to the list of issues you raised there, it it doesn't sound that much different to, for example, the Communist Party of China. So you have an institution who basically exists to exist. Its primary purpose is for the Communist Party to remain in power. It's not even the promotion of communism or socialism core to its existence. It's it's purely it exists to exist. So it's a different kind of religion. It's actually the religion of a party. Yeah. And so I think we've got to remember it's the institution. This is the kind of stuff that humans do to one another. And I, and I totally agree. But should we still be allowing institutions like that to exert power and influence within our country? I guess that's one of the one of the questions I have. I don't believe the list of things that I spoke about been held to justice. It's done under the name of religion. So it's very problematic. And I think that um, in terms of sacred cows and, and what you can go after, I think it's very, very clear that um, this wouldn't stand in any other organization. And it doesn't. The thing that's complicated is you take an institution like the Catholic Church and you judge it against values from 2022, whereas I think if you go back three, four, five hundred years, we can't get into the minds of, of what was acceptable and tolerated at that time. But I think to kind of look at very specific 
institutional problems, that's quite separate. And I think that's any large institution has those problems. And I think for an organization that's as old as the Catholic Church, I don't know that it is it an outlier. I don't know that it is. Yeah. Let's shift gears away from the um, the Catholic Church and try to get back to that question around whether God is good for us and whether there's a place for a new form of community. Can we take a lot of the good elements that we've spoken about when it comes to community, ethics, morality, and the support and outreach that you get from religious institutions and apply them to a more modern context? I think actually a really interesting example of this is, um, have you come across the the effective altruism movement? No, I think I've heard of them, but um, yeah, please go on. They would probably have different conceptions of, of what they're about, but I think most would agree that in broad terms, they're about two things. The first being that if you want to do good, you should do good in a manner that gives you the biggest possible impact. So you do good in a effective way. That's the effective in in the effective altruism piece. Um, and the second part of it is that actually you should be trying to do good. You should you should be doing more than what you would be doing if you were sleepwalking in, in your in your everyday life and not being very thoughtful. So you're worried about petty things like the cost of a cup of coffee going from $4 to $5, right? Whereas they would say, well, look, for the price of the increase in your cup of coffee, you could contribute to a bed net which would potentially save a child in Africa from malaria, uh, from dying oh, of man, malaria. And, and they get together, they love philosophizing about all of these weird and wonderful topics and there are like, communities, there's groups, and it seems like they get they enjoy doing it for its own sake. They want to take an evidence-based approach. So it's not actually religious in the sense of being evangelical about the cause. They're actually very methodical and targeted. But as we become mm. more privileged and, and we're better off and we need more than just material well-being, we need to feel good about ourselves, more people gravitate to these sorts of movements. I think that's really good. And I'd, I'd love to learn more about that. I've always thought that the the thing to replace Christianity is probably more of a study and a love of philosophy. But I do think that it's not as accessible to everyone and to getting that message out there. I think in a lot of ways, uh, religious institutions and religious communication has been a, very masterful at that. And I'd like to see that kind of ethics play out a bit more in the public sphere in in schools or making certain kind of dramatic arts and things, much like the Greeks did, to kind of help bolster that message and that learning. So coming together in small communities that support each other, that, that come together to uh, improve social cohesion and just the all the benefits of literally reflecting for an hour a week on the world, your place in the world. I think the one thing that we cannot get rid of in ourselves is that we're tribal and that we need a, a shared common thing to pull us all together. So I suspect it does have to be emergent from the things that we, we naturally gravitate to. So I don't think it's an improvement if that's politics. I don't, And I think that's what's happened. Mm. So I don't think we're better off because people have transposed their inclination to 
well, you know, if we've swapped religion for partisanship, I think that's that's a that's not a good outcome. I think that that means we can't consider things in the way that we should be, which is dispassionately and and caring about outcomes. There's attempts to build ethics classes in mm. schools. Uh, you know, this this stuff doesn't take off because people aren't intrinsically interested in it. They just want to be told what. I mean, religion was basically tell me, okay, tell me what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do, and I'll do it. And yeah, how do I get in? Right, that's yeah. what's about going back to the afterlife, right? Like, how do I get in? What's the minimum I yeah, got to yeah. do? What, baby? what are we going to do? One, one, <laughs> do? one thing I wanted to throw out there is this like idea that Christianity is is, is really hard done by because now we've we've actually focused a lot of today's conversation on on Christianity because that's maybe what we're more familiar with. But this you can write about what you know. Well, it, yes. <laughs> so it, so Christianity's had a hard time. It gets criticised. It's not in fashion from a culture war perspective we've in australia we've had um israel falau saga with with him uh, expressing his views on on gay marriage and losing his contracts as a footballer we've had uh, uh just recently and actually a lot of intersection with sport because there seems to be a still a stronghold of conservative christian values within, yeah. within sports so essendon football club um announced at CEO um, and within a day had to resign because he was affiliated with a, a conservative church. And then another s- scenario, uh, a, a football club had a pride jersey and six or six or seven players decided that they wouldn't wouldn't play because mm. they didn't want to wear the pride jersey. And, and, and just to be clear, these are actually a, a, a big playing cohort actually pacific islander communities who are a lot more conservative than conservative yeah the traditional mainstream view would be so yeah do, do you think christianity is under attack because we probably wouldn't apply that same standard to for example a senior leader from within the muslim community for yeah. example it's a good question and i think that when we look back at this time period, I think the answer will be yes. And I just think it's a safe target in the same way that attacking white middle-class people are fair game right now. You know, there's, it's a similar thing, I think, with uh, Christianity, that it's a safe place to try to tear down and redistribute some power. And I, and I do feel that um, people of that community would be feeling a bit of that vacuum, that they've lost a little bit of their position in society and it's a bit of an open season on on the way that they live and uh, some of their values and so on. Now, whether that's warranted is another question, but I do feel like, like you said, it's it's not equal across religions. You you definitely wouldn't feel the same attacking Islamic people or you know Buddhist people or any or any other religion at the moment. I think that's just part of the the zeitgeist, and that will ebb and flow over time. I don't think people would hold the view that you can't also raise those equivalent issues within the context of other religions, only that there probably is a perception that the people who tend to be part of the constituent parts of those religions as a community are in other ways disadvantaged in society or yeah, uh, and, and it's like you don't punch down you punch up and i think that's kind of what's going on i think that last bit is spot on 
um, and we should focus on that. You know, I heard this summed up perfectly with a Mario Kart analogy a long time ago, <laughs> and it's like you know how when um, you're coming last and you get the thunderbolt so you can catch up. It's like they don't give the thunderbolt to the guy who's fucking coming first <laughs> place, right? And so right now and for a long time, it's that part of society that is synonymous with Christian and Christian wealth and success have been in that first place. So yeah, like punching up, punching down, that's what's going on right now. You don't you don't attack, uh, you know, Wario, who's the Islamic guy that's like in the <laughs> mid-pack, right? You, you go after the first dude, man. So I think that's definitely like what's happening and that that's maybe that's okay maybe that's like a little bit of this stuff working working its way out so one thing i did want to um talk about was actually uh this quote that i saw so i've welcomed um my daughter into the world in the last few weeks and we were lucky enough to give birth at a um a great hospital and it was the anglican hospital and there was this quote on the wall that i actually took a picture of basically the quote is Christianity in action, at its core, is people caring about people. And I really liked that. And I think that in a modern sense, when you leave all the historical atrocities behind, um, I do firmly believe that uh, modern Christianity and other religions are trying to focus on helping people. And that's something that really, in my view, is not innate. It's definitely taught through community action. Um, I saw it filter through every part of the hospital stay and not in the religious way, but just in the caring attitudes, the nurturing, and it fits so well with that value of healing. Um, and it really kind of, when, when I approached this topic in my early twenties, I was much harsher and I just wanted to fight But as I've kind of matured and I've gotten a bit older, I really do see the value in some of this, um, the net value in a lot of these uh, helping and this outreach and community values. I just wanted to kind of throw that out there because I did think that that was a great quote that if you do ask a lot of modern Christians, they will just say it's about caring for other people. It's about living good life and caring. And this idea of turning the other cheek um, and, you know, helping and loving people at, at, at all costs is um, uh, a really beautiful message as well. So religions, I mean, you can put to one side whether or not God is real or not. and <laughs> Almost that's kind of peripheral to the whole thing. Like I think the functional value of, of religion is that it helps people to live the good life, right? So it, it helps as a guide of what should you care about? What, what values should you embody? And it's very, very easy to get caught up and swept up in material values and got to get that extra bit of money to you know keep up with the Joneses. You've got to keep progressing in some sort of material sense, in a career sense, or your status comes from your job or your career, whatever. Hmm. Whereas I think religion actually just sort of says, hang on, no, no, none of that's actually important. What's actually important is your relationships with other people and how you live your life. And I think most religions have some kind of prescription of what living a good life is about. And usually it is it's quite different to, I think, what people who don't have religious values land with. There's this, there's this concept where you, where you get out of yourself and your own body and stop caring about yourself and stop viewing the world as existing 
for you and see yourself as not the subject but rather the part of the story but not the story and i think that's something that religions can help help people with you and i weren't ready to have that conversation in our early 20s it was just more about you know we had we'd found out the santa claus finally wasn't real and we were just having fun with it you know where now i think you can understand you can step back and say actually the value of christmas is not just about santa claus <laughs> there's so many more beautiful things that go with that and how do we actually have a conversation to to relive that and respect people that are still in that system it brings a lot of people a lot of comfort there's um a very superficial argument against religion which is that this outlandish story in this in this book obviously it, it's so far-fetched it's not real and in the process of coming to a conclusion that well the god the god as prescribed in this in this text is is not real will just take all of the value out of its ideas and the fundamental principles of it and throwing that all away without really internalizing what it's all about and what the value actually is so it, it, and it can be fine we can say well we we think we think we're making a rational decision that we think we need to progress and we need to move forward but we can't kid ourselves to think that there are not going to be consequences and that it's all going to be smooth sailing because we know that a lot of these things that have developed over time have been what has helped us survive and and be strong in the past yeah i agree it's that um finding the middle of this conversation you know just because you don't agree with something or you don't believe there's factual relevance let's get past that and understand the complexities at play and where, where can we use that in the future in society okay well um that that's uh, probably a good place to leave it so i think i've got to go and put my special underwear on and say a few hell married after that episode all this banana talk is reminding me of uh, our sex ed class i think we were in the same class where that indian doctor came and he didn't realize that the penis was underneath the banana and you're like pulled it off suddenly and he was like oh he was trying to